0: Hello and welcome to the Soccer History USA podcast on today's episode, Soccer and the Color Line. In my interview with Roger Alloway from a couple of episodes ago, uh, we mentioned that Roger's interest in the history of American soccer was triggered by a question that a reporter had asked him about the first African-American player to score for the men's national team. And in some ways that question spurred my own curiosity about what was the history of black players in US soccer in the pre-civil rights era and I guess related to that is another question about who was the first black professional soccer player in the United States and as I conducted my research I, I quickly came to the conclusion that it's difficult to reach a definitive answer Uh, especially about who was the first pro. But I think the asking of the question allows us to think about and to talk about the complexity of racial definitions and how they change over time. I should also just point out here at the beginning of this episode that these are preliminary conclusions that I've drawn from my research thus far, but this is a topic that has not been well covered Uh, even in the very thin field of American soccer history uh, research. And so there's a lot more study, a lot more investigation, and a lot more research needs to be completed on this particular topic. We know that football in its various forms was played widely in the 19th century across the United States, but I could find little or no evidence that African Americans participated in this sport. It doesn't mean that they did not play football of some kind according to certain sets of rules, including soccer as we know it today. Uh, It just means that there was little or no evidence. By the time we get to the 1890s, uh, African-Americans, are uh, their sporting tastes, I suppose, are much like other Americans. Uh, They're playing college football. The first uh, collegiate football game by historical black colleges uh, came in 1892. Even earlier, we have evidence of professional baseball players like Moses Fleetwood Walker and and others. Other uh, sports, uh, so baseball, college football, And eventually, uh, into the 20th century, and especially in the 1920s, uh, basketball would also be incredibly popular. We also see in this early era, at the end of the 19th century, some examples of racial fluidity, which we'll be talking about a little later, and the difficulty sometimes of dealing with figures who are uh, not uh, not unambiguously white or black, And so a perfect example of this is the so-called Spanish catcher, Vincent Nava, from the late 19th century. The first evidence then we have for a black soccer team comes from New York in 1908. A man named Bob Douglas, who was an immigrant from the island of St. Kitts, founded the Spartan Athletic Club. And this was a club that had a variety of athletics associated with it for girls and boys and men. And one of the sports that they practiced was soccer. Douglas, by the way, would later go on to be an important figure in the development of basketball within the African-American community in New York City. That was his favorite sport and not uh, soccer. West Indians like Douglas were crucial to the development of black soccer in the city. And by 1930, there was a population of approximately 40,000 West Indian immigrants in New York. And these immigrants, much like the Spanish immigrants that I talked about in the last episode, formed different kinds of social networks. So there were churches, fraternal lodges, societies, and of course, sporting clubs. And in keeping with the traditions of the islands, uh, they played both soccer and cricket. Pre-World War I, we have the Spartan Athletic Club and other clubs. There seems to be some suggestion that there may have been other athletic clubs who played soccer, but it's hard to document. After the war, the sport, after World War I, I should say, the sport seemed to grow in popularity, and in 1917, the Fulton Athletic Club was formed. In 1918, the Chicago Defender ran an an article by Dave Wyatt, who may have been a uh, professional baseball player at one point, and he was uh, considering the growing popularity of football, and he included rugby style or I guess probably he meant American football and soccer and that both of them were growing in popularity and he concluded with this prediction experts who have watched the development of both soccer and baseball express the opinion that 50 years from now soccer will be the equal of baseball if not its superior especially in international popularity so I suppose he was right in some respects that Soccer did grow enormously in popularity over the 50-year period that he was talking about and that it proved to be uh, much more popular overseas, at least in most places, than did baseball. Wyatt also made another prediction. He noted that soccer was incredibly popular in South America by 1918, but he figured that since soccer required uh, such constant and high-energy movement that ultimately soccer would prove to be a failure in South America because it was so hot. So I guess he, 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 he won some and he, he lost some of his predictions. The 1920s and the 1930s saw a boom in soccer clubs, especially in New York City and the coverage of those soccer clubs by the black press uh, increased as well. In 1924, a team called the Western Tigers was playing in the Empire State League In 1926, the Falcon Athletic Club formed. Other black clubs included Maple Athletic Club, Excelsior Club, the Colonials, and the Maroons. And it was claimed that the Maroons were the only black club affiliated with the United States uh, Football Association. The Maroons and the Falcons played in the Metropolitan League, and they competed against white teams and they were allowed to play on all of the usual soccer fields within the city. Also during the 1920s and 1930s, uh, players began to uh, turn out for colleges. So Jamaican Kenneth Crooks uh, played soccer, varsity soccer at Harvard University and later went on to form a team at the Hampton Institute where he had a faculty position. Other West Indians were trained at the YMCA school in Springfield, and they also went to uh, historical black colleges and founded teams. By the end of the 1920s, the first intercollegiate soccer game was played between Howard and Hampton Universities, and the score ended in a 3-3 draw. Howard, of course, would go on to become a powerhouse of collegiate men's soccer in the 1960s and 70s and became the first... A historically black college to win a major national championship. Despite the success at co- the college level or the development of uh, soccer at black colleges and the uh, participation of West Indian Athletic Club soccer teams in metropolitan New York leagues, it, the sport did not seem to resonate with the broader African American community efforts by one club to bring in Hampton for a kind of friendly or a fundraising uh, match to be played at the polo grounds met with some pessimism. And uh, one news reporter or news columnist speculated that there just wasn't really enough interest in the sport among African-Americans and that they were unlikely to turn out to the polo grounds in the cold uh, to watch a game. Uh, And I think one of the key points that the, that the author makes in that article is that unlike college football, soccer did not have a, a growing social and cultural component attached to it. So the, the sports writer said that one of the reasons why people attended uh, college football games was to promenade uh, between quarters or, or between the two halves. So it seems that the importance of college football within the black community went beyond strictly athletics and it did have this kind of social and cultural dimension that at this point soccer did not have. The 1920s of course was the period when the American Soccer League was founded and flourished in New York City and in other locations along the eastern seaboard of the United States. And the American Soccer League brought in players from around the world, including an African player named uh, Tufik Abdullah, who was from Egypt. Uh, He had moved from Egypt to England, where he had hoped to study engineering, and instead began a career as a professional footballer. Uh, he played for a variety of teams in the UK, including Derby County. And by 1924, he had come to the United States to turn out for the Providence Clam Diggers. Over the next four years, he bounced around to different clubs in New York, Fall River, and Hartford. Uh, Erno Schwartz, who was a Hungarian immigrant who played for uh, ASL teams in the 1920s, he would later go on to coach uh, the men's national team and became vice president of the American Soccer League Too, He later claimed that there was never any kind of written or unwritten color line in soccer. And he uh, stated that, quote, our only measuring stick is ability and character. So if we look at a player like Abdullah, he was clearly a professional, but should we consider him the first professional black soccer player in the United States? Now that question is not as easily answered as it might seem, since definitions of race are socially constructed, sometimes individual identities are ambiguous, and oftentimes the definitions change, over time, and that can be on an individual level or on a social and cultural level. If we think about the various ways in which we might try to uncover an individual's racial identity, we might look at different ways of of answering that question. The first one might be self-identification. How do they view themselves? Unfortunately, we have no sources uh, to help us to answer that question, as far as Abdullah is concerned, a second definition might be uh, might be coming from the legal system. How did the government, for a variety of uh, purposes, define individuals? And then finally, we can look at broader social and cultural attitudes. Uh, you are defined racially by the way that others perceive you. So. We can talk a little bit about each of these going forward. When the term Caucasian was first developed at the uh, later half of the 18th century, uh, people were defined or Caucasian was said to include people of European, Middle Eastern and North African descent. Later, however, it became the word Caucasian became conflated with white so the two terms often began to be used interchangeably and by the end of the 19th century uh, Caucasian and white were often again applied almost exclusively to people of northern European descent even southern Europeans were often excluded from these categories and considered to be not white nevertheless The definition was malleable enough to change and eventually groups who had formerly been been classified as non-white, including uh, Irish, Jews and Italians, were brought into the category and were slowly considered and defined as being white. Today, US law says that North Africans are considered white. But that was not always the case, and the official government line was often changing depending on a particular court case. So there were several court cases in the 1940s in particular which seemed to come down on both sides, that people of North African and Middle Eastern descent were sometimes classified as white and sometimes classified as not white. Various sorts of factors could play in here, including religion, including education, including social class. So once again, we can see that the categories are not fixed and depend on a number of factors. The last category is what we might call a social and cultural definitions uh, or race as a sort of uh, public performance and that you are the race that people perceive and treat you to be. And this is uh, for West Indians, for example, and other foreign born immigrants. Sometimes this ambiguity allowed them to avoid the worst sorts of discriminations and, uh, uh, and segregations associated with the Jim Crow uh, system. So often having a foreign passport or speaking a foreign language helped. So even individuals, American-born individuals like James Weldon Johnson and Langston Hughes found that by speaking uh, Spanish, they could sometimes be perceived as foreign-born and, and that would allow them to enjoy privileges that they couldn't as African-Americans. So if we go back to the case of Abdullah, we can see that he was foreign-born, that he was educated, Uh, And that sometimes could sway perceptions about how people defined him from a racial perspective. We don't know what his religion was. Uh, We might speculate that he was a Muslim given that he came from Egypt. But again, there's no information one way or the other. One possible avenue for answering the question is what did people at the time, how did they perceive him? Well, if we examine the black press, for example, they didn't say much at all about Abdullah and his participation in the American Soccer League, uh, or at least that I could uncover. So they at least did not recognize him or acknowledge the presence of Abdullah as being particularly significant. Now, this is... the the black press would often trumpet the participation and particularly the skill of black athletes. So for example, when Jose Leandro Andrade toured with the Uruguayan soccer team in 1927, there were a lot of articles published in the black press, the Chicago Defender, the New York Amsterdam News about uh, Andrade and how talented and skillful Uh, he was. Uh, Andrade had an African uh, father and an Argentine mother. And there was, as I said, lots of photos and praise and uh, articles written during the tour. The Chicago Defender, for instance, called him the greatest halfback in the universe. So clearly, when a successful foreign-born athlete who was recognized or acknowledged uh, or defined as black, Uh, the uh, press was not hesitant to trumpet that. And they certainly didn't do that in the case of Abdullah. Now, unlike Andrade, who was a world-class athlete on an Olympic, uh, you know, one of the world's great soccer clubs, the Egyptian was not much of a star in the American Soccer League. As I mentioned, he bounced around and he was more of a kind of a squad player, I would say, or a journeyman and, and not a star. So that would seem to close the book on the subject, that Abdullah, according to most uh, U.S. law and traditional definitions, uh, seems to have been classified, and the way he was treated by the black press seems to uh, answer the question. However, uh, other reports indicate that Abdullah, who, after he stopped playing soccer professionally, went on to be a coach— That he eventually left the United States because he was reportedly tired of the Jim Crow system and the discrimination that he faced at not being allowed to uh, stay in hotels with his white teammates or eat in the same restaurants. So that, uh, at least for some, uh, he was perceived as uh, black while others uh, did not. So Ultimately, was Abdullah the first black professional soccer player in the United States? I would probably say not, despite the treatment that he sometimes received. So, in a sense, we haven't really answered the question. And in the next episode, I'll talk more about soccer and the color line, and we'll look at the particular example of the city of Chicago, and we'll examine the career of Gil Heron, who may have a stronger claim to be the first black professional soccer player in the U.S. Thank you for listening to the Soccer History USA podcast. For episode notes, please visit the website at www.soccerhistoryusa.org and follow me on Twitter at Soccer History U.S.